Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here is CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger to tell us what the rules are on giving to charities. Have they changed? They actually have changed. They revert back to what they were. And what do I mean by that? During COVID, we had the CARES Act. Remember, the big stimulus plan tucked inside of the CARES Act was this little benefit that you got for giving to charity. And it was a very like kind of it seems like a small thing, but a lot of people took advantage of it. It allowed you to take a tax deduction up to three hundred dollars as an individual when you made a cash contribution to a charity. And the the caveat used to be before this rule came into effect, you really couldn't make a taxable contribution and get a benefit from it unless you were an itemizer of your deductions. The CARES Act said, we'll give anybody who gives money away a benefit. And now we revert back to where we were before the pandemic, meaning in order to get a tax benefit for your giving, you have to be an itemizer of deductions. That means you have to add up what you spend on state and local taxes and mortgage interest and out-of-pocket medical expenses and, yes, charitable deductions. And if you're over a threshold, you itemize. You know, only about 10% of tax filers do itemize, which means very few people get a taxable benefit from giving. So what is the threshold? How much would you have to give away to make itemization worthwhile? Well, if you add up all those items, right, if you say I have a mortgage, I have out-of-pocket medical, those those itemized um, categories, if they are more than $12,950 as an individual or $25,900 for a married filing jointly, then you itemize. So you got to... You add those numbers up, and if you're over that threshold, you get to itemize. Again, most people give to charity for altruistic purposes, not for the tax benefit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so but you have to be really generous then for itemization to be worth it, sounds like. Well, you do, or you have to have a big mortgage payment, or you have to have large out-of-pocket medical expenses. So there's all these categories that you have to take into account. And if you're close to it, maybe maybe you're like one year, you say like, wow, I just got a knee replacement and my out-of-pocket medical was massive. And maybe this is a year where you're actually close to the threshold. Maybe you're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm at 21,000 and we're married filing jointly. Maybe you do want to give five grand to a charity for that year and push you in and get a benefit from your giving. You'll have to see. But again, it's a very high threshold, which is why only about 10% of filers are actually able to itemize. Okay. Now for people who are retired and getting to that age where they have to start taking money out of their retirement accounts, there are also certain charitable provisions that they might want to take advantage of too, right? This I think is a fabulous idea because a lot of people who retire, they've got a retirement account and they now have an IRA account. And once you turn age 72, you have to start taking money out of that account. It's called a required minimum distribution. Well, uh, many people, if you're living on Social Security, maybe you've got a pension benefit. Maybe you are still got some income from uh, passive income from a rental property. People will often say, I don't actually need the money that I have to take out of my retirement account. And they're bummed because when you're forced to take that money, you have to pay taxes on it, right? right? Those taxes can push you into a higher tax bracket. Those taxes can make your Medicare more expensive. Well, if you're retired, you can actually use something called a qualified charitable distribution. This allows you to gift up to $100,000 directly from your IRA to one or more public charities. And that means...
means that money goes straight to the charity. You don't have to pay tax on it. So this allows you to be charitable. You're not going to get a deduction, but you don't have to pay taxes on that required minimum distribution. And you're lowering the base that you have in that retirement account. And again, most people need the money in their retirement account. I get that. But there are some really interesting cases where people say to me, like, I don't really need this money. It's a bummer. I have to pay taxes on it. Huh. Does that happen a lot where somebody, they have this stock, they make a killing of it, and they're so averse to paying capital gains on it, they, they just decide, I'll just give it away? There's a ton of people who do that. Really? I mean, in your area especially, you can be part of a, um, you know, there, there's like three different categories of people that I find are really interesting. They're like the buy and hold till death, basically. Right. And then they're like, wow, I'm living a long time and I've got this huge appreciated security and I can give part of that away to charity, which is a really nice benefit. There's also people who get stock in when they join a company and maybe that the stock, even if you've had a bad year this year, that stock is probably still has a lot of gains. And then there the people who inherit stock. You know, I had someone recently on my podcast who said, you know, I inherited a thousand shares of IBM 40 years ago. I never touched it. I mean, so IBM might not have a good year this year, but that's a pretty So, you know, you can do a lot of different things with that. You can gift those highly appreciated shares to charity. And also you can open up a donor advised fund. You can put the money into a fund that allows you to gift to charity over time, but you can do it all. It will take a big tax deduction in one particular year. So lots of different ways to give. Uh, I hope you give and don't get sucked into Cyber Monday. Yeah, right. Uh, One more thing. I noticed that there are a number of banks who are raising their interest rates on savings. Are you seeing any of that? I mean, am I seeing it in my own account? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you know what? Um, There are a lot of different ways that you can participate in a rising interest rate environment. Shopping around for better interest rates from banks is a good one. Um, So, you know, I know a lot of people will just like, eh, I don't feel like dealing with that. There's so many resources online. uh, Bankratedepositaccounts.com. You can find a lot of very good online institutions. Just keep the amount of money in your own institution that gives you free stuff, like free checks. And transactions. Okay. Exactly. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Great to be with you. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We now have some more information about last year's experimental operation, which involved transplanting a genetically modified pig heart into a human being for the first time. Let's page the doctor. Dr. Gordon Cohen, heart surgeon. So tell us a little bit about this case, Dr. Cohen. So when you transplant an animal heart into a human, you transplant across species. That's called a xenographic transplant, X-E-N-O-graphic transplant. The most famous of which, which some listeners may remember, was in 1984 at Loma Linda University, uh, Leonard Bailey transplanted a baboon heart into a newborn, and that baby was known as Baby Faye. So Baby Faye lived for about a month and then died. And then since then, there's been no attempts at xenographic heart transplants until this past year. So as that research has progressed, and we've gotten smarter and more knowledgeable about how to do these things, we've also learned to genetically modify things over the past uh, couple of decades. We've talked about that before. And so this combination of things led to the opportunity to try and genetically modify a pig heart 
so that it could be transplanted into a human. Which sounds very complicated because of the lengths you have to go to, including this genetic modification, to uh, to prevent rejection. So why is there so much urgency to this research? Right. So there's a shortage of organs. And this is especially a problem in children because in order for them to get a heart, it has to usually be a pediatric heart that's donated, not an adult heart. So you know, there is a huge organ shortage and heart is one of the organs that has the greatest shortage. And so how long did he live with this this uh, genetically modified pig heart? So he lived a total of, of 60 days, but it was it was sort of an interesting post-operative course because his health actually began to improve after the surgery and ultimately was able to be weaned off of uh, life support and uh, was able to actually sit in a chair and communicate with his caregivers and whatnot. Uh, they said he watched the Super Bowl and ultimately he got to the point where he was asking, why am I even still in the intensive care unit? And interestingly, the team describes um, that considering moving him to a regular room in the hospital, but uh, 49 days after the transplant, the experimental heart, the pig heart, began to fail, and they had to restart life support, and he ended up dying 11 days after that when they uh, compassionately withdrew the support. But the interesting thing was is uh, when they studied this heart afterwards, there was no sign of organ rejection, which is really interesting because usually when a, a human-to-human heart transplant fails, it's due to organ rejection. But one of the things that they later uh, sort of identified is the possibility that he had a, a latent porcine viral infection. And this is one of the things that we worry about with doing xenographic transplants, that there could be animal viruses, or in this case, pig viruses, that you know, get transplanted to somebody, their immune system gets suppressed, they get infected with that, and then they transfer it to another human. And so we've now introduced a new animal virus into the human population. There are still a lot of things that need to be considered here. For example, you know, we don't know if you transplant a heart into, let's say, a child, a pig heart in the child, will the heart continue to grow as the child grows? Yeah. We know with, with human hearts that, that does happen, but we don't know if that will happen with you know an animal heart or a pig heart in this case. The other thing is, you know, pigs have a natural lifespan of about 20 years. Humans, our lifespan is, you know, four or five times that. So, you know, is a animal heart likely to fail much earlier uh, than a human heart would? Well, you certainly don't want to fool around with more viruses being transmitted from animals to humans. But what's your, your gut instinct? Will transplanting animal hearts into human beings one day be standard? Well, I, I think we're closer, but I still have the sense that we're a ways off. Like, I still think that, you know, 10 years from now, this will not be standard. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 to 30 years that this is something that is done routinely. But on the other hand, it's happening in parallel with uh, development of artificial hearts that are mechanical with biological tissues, and those may be brought to the forefront before this. The other possibility is that, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to grow organs from our own tissue. And people have done, you know, a whole lot of very interesting work, uh, including 3D printing uh, kidneys, 
some people have uh, taken mouse hearts and just removed all the, the the muscle cells, the myocytes from the skeleton of the heart and then repopulated it with the uh, animal's own uh, myocytes that have been grown on it and that started to beat. Uh, it hasn't functioned yet. So we may be able to grow organs before we're able to do this. But all these things are going to happen and the work's going to happen in parallel. And then hopefully they'll all contribute to one another so that whatever the best possibility is works out in the end. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Crimes and crimes involving illegal guns. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott with this week's edition of Crime and Punishment. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning, Dave. Yes, so uh, because of the holiday, we didn't have any sentencings on Friday, but we do have an arraignment coming up this morning. So Casey McNurthney with the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office says later this morning they'll be in court for an arraignment of a man charged in a recent hate crime case. Now, this is the case that happened just before 4 p.m. at Fifth and Wall in Seattle. The defendant, without being provoked, yelled racist insults at a group of Asian men. According to police, he made really terrible statements and also brought up COVID and yelled about the China virus, um, according to police, and, and then headbutted one of the victims in the face. And, and that victim had a broken nose. It's a really terrible assault. Now, so this was just this last month in November. I hadn't heard of any cases like that where you had people saying China virus and things like that for quite some time. So I was a little surprised to hear that. Uh, the guy involved here, this guy has an extensive history involving assault. Given the biased nature of that assault and the fact that it was unprovoked and on a stranger, and also because this defendant has an ongoing case in the separate Seattle Municipal Court, King County prosecutors argued that he should be held on $25,000 bail. A judge set his bail at $10,000, so not quite what King County prosecutors asked for, but that was enough to keep him in jail. And so he's still in custody now. He'll be in court at 8.30 this morning. Now, as far as that history, he has uh, at least uh, a half a dozen other assault charges. One of them is domestic, uh, several convictions that are outside of this state, uh, nine arrests uh, in this state, none of them convictions. And then that pending case in Seattle Municipal is also an assault charge. So, again, very long history of assault um, and no other hate crime charges, though, in the past. Now, we've talked a lot about hate crimes in recent years. As far as the numbers here in King County? There are 251 hate crime cases that were charged between the start of 2018 and today, uh, just by King County prosecutors. That's looking only at King County. Um, at least 131 of those cases are cases that uh, targeted someone's race or ethnicity or perceived race or ethnicity. That's the most common type of hate crime that's referred to King County prosecutors. It's most frequently involving black victims, um, but certainly there are all types of disturbing cases. Cases that uh, target someone's sexual orientation or gender expression are the, the next most common type of, of hate crime that are referred to King County prosecutors. Now, he says that uh, Seattle has a uh, person who is dedicated to investigating hate crimes. I think we've talked about that before. So uh, they do they have seen the numbers go up some because they've got more dedicated resources uh, as far as Seattle investigators go. Also, in the most currently passed, uh, recently passed budget for King County prosecutors, they also have two new employees that will be dedicated to investigating the hate crimes and handling those hate crime cases. So he expects to see those numbers go up because the overarching theme is that they, even though we 
see so many of these or hear about so many of these reported, uh, there are still many that they believe are not uh, being reported. In the, uh, the last five years, so in 2018, there were several hate crimes charged, but none were identified as Asian victims. In 2019, four involving Asian victims. Again, in 2020, four involving Asian victims. Last year, eight involving Asian victims. And then this year, as he said, three. So uh, still an ongoing uh, issue, uh, definitely. Yeah, and remind us when when there's a hate crime char- charge added to us. I mean, assault's already against the law, but when you have a hate crime charge added, how does that change the sentencing? Uh, it depends on if you, you could be held for... Uh, it's a, it's a gross misdemeanor, I believe now, uh, the way that they changed the law in this state. So it adds more time, and it's a it's a it's a separate charge, and uh, and that's a very significant uh, extended period of time that you could spend in jail, uh, as well as your fine. But it's also very important to to victims who often felt for a very long time that there was no uh, you know no one took them seriously when you would get kind of an allegation of a hate crime. But some of these are, are very, very blatant and very, very uh, dangerous. There's people who've been hurt really, really bad when this yeah, happens. Yeah, of course. Now, yeah. do we know whether the, this hate crime sentencing enhancement is actually working as a deterrent? Because it seems like we're seeing more hate crimes, not less. Well, no. And, I, you know, I don't know that anybody's necessarily tracking the the outcome of it, whether it's being a deterrent just yet, because it's it's a fairly new thing. And again, remember, we've got prosecutors dealing with a backlog of cases and all of that. So I don't think they have the resources yet to do that. Hopefully they will soon, because uh, it, it does seem like what you're saying, that we do see so many of those that come up. And I think there's so much there's been so much divisiveness and so much going on over the last couple of years that that's that's played a big role. So uh, hopefully that will make a dent in things. I want to quickly get to, before we run out of time, something that we were talking about last week, uh, digging in a little deeper into that issue from last week, gun crimes, and specifically those guns that fall into the wrong hands due to unsafe storage. Now, on a single day last month, there were two of those cases. What happened here is the Glock was left on the defendant's bed. Uh, His two minor brothers, age eight and nine years old, uh, found the gun and were taking turns pulling the trigger or we're pulling the trigger, led to the nine-year-old being shot in the head. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible outcome, and that's really traumatic for everybody involved. But when we get a case like that, that's pretty clearly um, a, a charge of community endangerment due to unsafe storage. And we charge those cases when we get the evidence to, to prove it. That's a felony crime. Wow. Right. So this was, uh, again, this is an older brother. He told the cops that he had bought this gun for 200 bucks at the transit center because he wanted to use it to kind of threaten someone who had threatened his older brother to just basically for protection. Uh, but he said he had never done that, but he carried it normally with in his backpack, his work backpack, he had a, a local job somewhere. And when that day he had put it on the bed uh, while he showered and his eight and nine year old brothers, they get it, they grab it, they, they're in there. They're playing back and forth, wow. uh, you know, p- you know, pow, pow, kind of like you do with a gun as a, as a little boy. And it was loaded. It was loaded. Not only was it loaded, but it was loaded with a high capacity magazine. Wow. Now, this gun was completely illegal. And then quickly that same day, there was also another case that was charged uh, involving somebody from a homeless encampment. Also had a gun, a ghost gun, no serial numbers on it. Uh, this is a guy who had also had like 21 EBT cards on him. Uh, so he had been kind of dealing with some other crimes. But again, we still see these guns. That gun, by the way, that 
had no serial number on it, uh, was eventually tracked down to, oh, I'm sorry, second gun he, that person had was tracked down to a home where it had been stolen from, like we'd been talking about last week. So those continue to happen on a daily basis. Okay, and so the what's the penalty then for what he did, leaving that gun out where these uh, kids could get it? So he is now charged with community endangerment due to unsafe storage of a firearm in the first degree. And that could be uh, because I, oh, I should have pointed out the little brother, though he was shot in the head, uh, very luckily did not even have uh, life threatening injuries. So he's going to he survived and is going to be OK. That's Had cool. that person died, you're looking at a a longer period of time, a different crime, I believe, that could mm-hmm. be ca- uh, charged there. But under this case, uh, it's just going to be uh, still that felony case. And you could get up to up to five years behind bars because and of the that. felony means he can't buy a gun again right right and he shouldn't be able to buy a gun in the first place because i don't believe he was 21 ah well there's that too there's that too Carney's radio yeah, uh, doesn't matter because they're still out there on the street right right hannah scott thank you hannah you bet your daily dose of kindness sponsored by heritage Homecraft. A few years ago, a boy named Henry Boyer attended his first University of Michigan game and decided he wanted to be part of the marching band. Well, he's come a long way since. Here's Steve Hartman. He was only in third grade, but Henry Boyer already knew what he wanted to be. As we first reported a few years ago, Henry discovered his passion after attending a University of Michigan football game. They were that good? My mind was blown of how good they played. But it wasn't the football that he fell for. It was the marching band. He even wrote a letter to the band saying how he'd love to sign up someday. Let's go blue! And in response, the band sent him a bunch of swag and a card, inviting him to audition when he's older. What were you feeling in that moment? Surprised and heartwarmed. What did they say? They said they are going to accept me in a few years. Into what? Into the marching band. Are you excited? Yes, I'm really excited. After that, Henry asked his mom if he could double up on piano lessons and started taking drums, too. Like the card said, practice hard and I will practice hard. So you can get there someday? Yes. I just have a really good feeling that I'm going to be in the marching band. If all goes as planned, Henry will join the band in the fall of 2029. And when this report originally aired, Steve and the University of Michigan agreed that that was a long time to wait. So they invited him to campus to meet the marching band. And he did. Now, years later, at 11 years old, he got another invite. Last weekend, the band invited him back. Henry, who's now 11, got to lead the march to Michigan Stadium. And when the time came for his favorite song at his favorite venue, Henry Boyer was front and center. Yeah, that even made me want to join the band even more. But no matter where his music career takes him, hopefully Henry will continue to follow the lead set by this marching band and play it forward. Steve Hartman on the road. You guys have the best music ever. <laughs> In Ann Arbor, Michigan. I can't wait to join. Oh, yeah. It'll come soon. So hopefully I'll still be doing the Daily Dose of Kindness in, yeah. uh, what was that, 2029, and I can give you another update. I miss the marching bands. Me too. I, I used to watch the university, the, the uh, college games, mainly to see the marching bands at halftime. Oh, yeah. No, I was a cheerleader in high school, and there was nothing like the, the national anthem, and then... Yeah. 
because we had the tomahawk mm-hmm. chop back when I went to Marysville. You guys can come but... to Bozeman this weekend. MSU's got a pretty good marching band. Yeah, yeah, I do. Really gets you in the mood. Yeah, it does. <laughs> 748 and now from the G and Ursula show. It starts at 9 here on Cairo News Radio. Here he is, the co-host of the tree lighting ceremony, G. Scott. How'd that go? That was incredible. Wasn't it fun? Yeah, the Downtown Seattle Association, um, they really do a great job. I think the uh, everything about it. I thought it was going to be, because a lot of times I can go to an event and it'd be just kind of like, okay, what's taking so long? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. The crowd started to gather around. The unlit tree was right there with the unlit star. Before you know it, it was uh, the jewel notes got the singing. Ursula and I got on stage. We introduced the mayor. The mayor got up there and gave you the one Seattle speech. That lasted for about two minutes. His beautiful family was on there. And then we got on. We did the countdown. Didn't miss any numbers. Didn't, didn't miss any numbers. Good. I didn't go from 10 to 7. Thought about it. Uh, <laughs> went from 10 all the way to 1 to count down. The, the, the tree was lit. The star was lit. And then all of a sudden, boom, there was fireworks. Oh, they had fireworks. They had fireworks, man. It was it was really nice. A lot of people. Shout out to all the people that came down. Beautiful. Seeing all of your families. Yeah, but was Santa there? It was, yeah, it was oh, Santa. Okay. Was Santa was on stage. That's right. Did it's, you get to press the tree lighting button, though? Then what they said, G, you're not pressing no buttons. <laughs> we know how you are. We just, just, as a matter of fact, G, can you stick to the script? That's what they wanted me to do. Uh, no, no, being serious, had I known it was, uh, and I'm going to be honest, had I known it was going to be that good, I would have probably promoted it more. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I was, I mean, I was excited, but, uh, but I've never been to a tree lighting one. Yeah. And two, this was really, do- this was done re- really well. It was beautiful. Yeah. So. so let's talk about the game yesterday. I thought we was going to talk about good things. No, uh, <laughs> I have a question about that, uh, controversial DK Metcalf catch. I guess after watching 50 replays of it, he didn't have complete control of the ball. But then when you see it at regular speed, you realize we're talking like about a thousandth of a second. So where do you come down on that? The right call was made. Yeah. He didn't catch the ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, if, if I'm a um, Raider fan, I'm on the other side. I'm like, oh, he clearly didn't catch the ball. If I'm a Seahawk fan, I'm like, wait a minute. You don't have to slow it down. You know, don't do the replay like that. Just do it in real speed like Dave Ross just said. You know, Two things happened for me yesterday. One, I realized that that loss really sucked. Like, it really sucked. Like, it's one of those games where you just like, I know the Seahawks are going to win. I know I, the entire game I just kept saying, no matter what, the Seahawks are going to win. No matter what. And then they lost. And then I realized, I think for the first time in my life, and maybe it's because I'm getting older, that these losses don't bother me as much as they used to. Like, it's just a game. Because they don't change your life. And, 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 I, and I, think, I, think, I think what's starting to happen is, is I'm realizing that um, you can't be preaching and talking about, uh, well, you oh, hate here and hate there. And then all of a sudden, when football games are won or lost, then there's that amount of hate that's going on and the things that are said on social media. So, I mean, I try not to let it, well, I used to try not to let it ruin my weekends if the Seahawks were to lose. But yesterday, I really came to the conclusion, like, look, 
this is just a game. And so even though it sucked, you know, I really wanted to see Hawks to win, so probably to you listening. They're 6-5 and five right now, and they still have action. They do have a tough game that is going to be coming up this weekend against those uh, the 49ers. They're getting ready to play. No, excuse me, the Rams. I'm sorry. The Rams. They're getting ready to go down to the Rams and play against them play against Bobby Wagner and those Rams and so the Rams aren't really doing that well either but so it'll be an important game to get but I just think the last two games the Tampa Bay Buccaneers out there in Germany of course and then of course this game here at home against the Raiders Oof. oh it's brutal they've got a tough schedule coming up not only do they have the Rams then they have the Panthers on the 11th and the 49ers on the 15th they only get four days to recover yeah but here's a good news about that um, the, uh, of those games obviously they have six games left to play of those six games four of them at the crib dave now dave when i say the crib what the crib mean that would be uh the field down the road there yeah at home the home okay. very, yeah. very very true right. so they get four so four of their last six regular season games are at home so that is an opportunity to do that you got you got the jets that'll happen on uh, january 1st new year's day that'll happen you got uh you, you have the, the rams, rams. After that again you yeah. have the rams that'll happen here so yeah we got some good stuff happening so the Broncos lost to the Panthers, twenty-three to ten. And I I heard that. Well, I mean, we haven't got time, do we? Oh, sorry. We don't. Yeah. All right. We'll talk about that next time. Maybe. Why you always, man? I, you know, what's going on in, in Denver, man? What's so special about over there? <laughs> I just apparently this, there was some you know back talk on the line, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. All right, guys. See you. Eight sixteen, Seattle's morning news. Less than two years before he helped to fatally restrain Manny Ellis. The state's police academy reportedly warned a uh, about a Tacoma police officer who, as a cadet, had a violent response to the use of force training exercise. There's been a pretty big investigation into this, and let's go to Cardinals Radio's Hannah Scott for more. Yes, uh, so this is, we're talking about Officer Timothy Rankin. He's one of the three officers charged in the death of Manny Ellis uh, back in March of 2020. Uh, I do want to give credit, this is a great investigative piece by Patrick Malone over at the Seattle Times who did some digging and got some public records and found this memo uh, talking about this December 2018 exercise that was designed to assess whether cadets can recognize when to use non-lethal force. Uh, what happened in this case was that ranking shot uh, the virtual suspect and then laps deeper into what the trainer described in this memo as mental condition black. So I'll take you back to what the uh, training exercise was exactly. It, uh, he and uh, he was one of 30 recruits at the time. He was the only one of the 30 recruits to shoot this uh, virtual suspect. And just for reference, uh, the this kind of virtual uh training exercises where they have the projections on screen of suspects, all virtual, kind of like a video game. Uh, the, what the suspects do and how they interact with the cadets is what the, the trainer controls that, right? So there's various mm-hmm. scenarios. This was a non-lethal force training exercise where there should have been no one shooting the suspect. But what happened was uh, this cadet, uh, Rankin, he engaged with the suspect. He was uh, the virtual suspects in a park. Uh, the cadet tried to talk to him. 
him, but uh, and he was only said to be, uh, you know, armed with a knife. Uh, as uh, he, the virtual suspect, uh, kind of got aggressive with his words, just verbally, with the cadet, um, asking for, you know, demanding an officer's ID, that kind of thing. Uh, then the cadet started to argue back and forth with him. At which point, the trainer got in the ear and said that the conversation isn't working. That's when he he shot the virtual suspect, which was completely unjustifiable was what it was uh, deemed as in this memo that was found. Uh, but more interesting was also what he had said afterwards, is that uh, he, he didn't think he had done anything wrong. He thought it was the right response. He also didn't seem to uh, remember some of what happened. He said that he shot this virtual suspect because he saw the virtual suspect reach for a bulge in his pocket, and he believed that to be a weapon. But that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but to be clear, this, the whole purpose the whole purpose of this phase of the exercise is what do you do when a suspect gets aggressive right. but does not have a gun and does not display a gun, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and okay. again, like I said, this is a non-lethal exercise. That's yeah. what that was the whole point. So that's yeah. it's a test to see, and it's not a pass-fail thing. It's just part of the overall training, right? Um, and it, you know, f- this outcome on its own wouldn't be anything on its own necessarily to keep the department from hiring him. But it's it's a flag, and that's why the academy two days after this outcome did flag this for the Tacoma Police Department, which decided to hire him anyways. The Seattle Times did reach out, didn't get any exact steps uh, that the department had taken before hiring him based on this flag because of this training. Um, but uh, what did come out also in this article is that uh, this uh, cadet Rankin is a Purple Heart recipient, and he said at the time after this exercise that he thought that his response was perhaps in reaction to what he had seen in combat, where yeah. he had seen uh, several people, uh, several friends die in combat, and is, is this is something that is not uncommon, according to some experts that the Times talked to. Beyond that, though, during the Short seven months that he was on patrol for the Tacoma Police Department, Manny Ellis, this particular officer is the officer who is charged for having his uh, knee on the back of Manny Ellis, uh, while the other two officers charged were restraining him. Uh, that's not the first officer, that, uh, the first suspect that that happened to just a few months before that. Uh, he was involved in another case where he's said to have had his knee on the back of the suspect who said he could not breathe. So that's two. That's another civil suit uh, against this particular officer as well. So again, just seven months on patrol, you have the Maniella's death, and then you have a separate civil lawsuit for that other case. Now the, so there are a lot of questions now about right, it. Right. Now, the Times interviewed an expert who, who said that he has seen uh, recruits go into something called mental condition black mm-hmm. many times, and it usually involves recruits who have experienced military combat trauma. And it's not uncommon for for uh, ex-military to become cops. And that's what I want to ask you about. Does does the this investigation, the Times, call into question the wisdom of hiring former uh, soldiers as police officers? Well, and what it, it does, one of the experts talked about is that uh, many police agencies now have strengthened their screening process to specifically look for signs of PTSD in recruits, mm-hmm. which uh, largely is going to deal with with your uh, you know combat veterans, but also they want uh, now to talk about doing that on a regular basis with police in general because they too see trauma on the job and could develop that kind of PTSD. So you want to not only make sure that those that you're hiring uh, are going to be capable of making these decisions 
decisions and not suffer from this uh, this condition that he may have been going through where they're what they hear is not what's actually happening and what they see is not what's actually happening is basically what that condition is. Uh, but you also want to make sure that your daily cops are also on a regular basis, not falling into that same situation. So it's not saying, you know, don't don't hire combat mm-hmm. veterans, but let's make sure we have better screening. And it sounds like at least for combat veterans, there is that screening at this point. So what's what remains to uh, to be discovered about this case? Do we pretty much know what happened now and how to prevent it in the future? Well, how to prevent it in the future? Uh, you know, de-escalation. Uh, and for this particular training exercise, the experts talk about how he should have uh, de-escalated, given him kind of say, space, uh, space and distance, get, gathered physical control without using lethal force. Uh, that's going to be, you know, your taser, what, whatever else you might have that's not going to kill a person. Um, beyond that, with the overall sense of this case, is these three officers have been on paid administrative leave for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Awaiting trial. That trial will start at the end of next month. Is this going to have a morale effect on police officers who are already working in understaffed conditions, under pressure because of the uh, perceived increase in crime? Sure. You know, I mean, I think you can't help that. For, for one, uh, as this trial gets underway, you're going to have a lot more media headlines about it, right? A lot more press coverage. It's going to bring it all back up for everybody. You've still got a couple of lawsuits going on um, against uh, different. You, I think you've got one against Tacoma Police Department by Ellis's family, and they've already settled with Pierce County uh, for four, four million dollars, I believe. So I think that in and of itself is going to be, you know, just overall in general, putting more kind of of publicity and things on officers in general, which is, is going to be tough on them. And then uh, similarly, uh, later next year, we have the other case of the first officer in Auburn to be charged under I-940, who was charged with murder for the death of Jesse Saray, again, back in 2020. Uh, that's only going to be a few months apart, so I think that, that that's going to be a tough year for, for officers in the state. Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott. Thank you, Hannah. You bet. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.